Hey everyone, welcome back to another season of nine to five ish. We are so excited to learn from more amazing women leaders. And this season's going to be a little different because we've all had a moment in our careers where things felt impossible, or we had to make a life-changing decision that could impact the rest of our careers, our business, or our personal lives. So this season, we are asking each of our guests about the single hardest thing they've ever done in their careers. But we don't want to spoil it too much. We hope you love listening to this new season of 9 to 5-ish. Now let's get to the episode. I mean, I've gotten pretty decent at telling other people's stories, but when it comes to advocating for myself, for negotiating for myself, for standing up for myself, it's really still challenging. I'm Carly Zakin. And I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to 9 to 5-ish with The Skin. We've run into so many questions over the years and had so many moments where we needed advice and we got it from women who'd been there. And that's what we're bringing you with this show. Each week, we're helping you get what you want out of your career by talking to the smartest leaders we know. Because we know your work life is a lot more than nine to five. All right, let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Today, our guest is award-winning journalist and producer, Lisa Ling. Most journalists go to college first and then hit the newsroom, but that was not Lisa's path. Lisa started her journalism career when she was a teenager, working on a new show called Scratch. Since then, she's worked her way up the journalism ladder from co-hosting The View to literally reporting from North Korea. It's safe to say Lisa's got quite the range But these days, you may know her best for her longtime CNN series, This Is Life with Lisa Ling, which just started its ninth season. You can tune into the show on CNN Sundays at 10 p.m. Eastern and Pacific time. Lisa, welcome to 9 to 5-ish. We're so happy to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So we'd like to start things off with a quick lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Are you ready? Okay. I'm terrible at this, but I'm going to go for it. (laughs) First job you got paid for? I was hostessing in an Italian restaurant when I was 16 years old. What's your greatest advice? My greatest advice? I would have to say that I am completely and totally addicted to coffee in the morning. Yes. In fact, if there were a device that could intravenously feed it into my veins upon waking up, I would invest in it (laughs) immediately. What's your coffee order? It's very simple. I mean, it's just a black coffee and I, I put some cream and a stevia in it. Very simple. Can get it anywhere. I'm not a fancy coffee drinker. Well, at least you have that. I'm addicted and I'm very particular. I have to be able to get access to it everywhere. Big cities, small cities. So uh, black coffee with cream. (laughs) What is what's your what's your what's your fancy coffee? It's a large Americano with an extra shot. So now I'm up to a quad with skim milk. Ooh, yeah, that can be challenging in like Kenosha. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, you, you have traveled a lot for work. What is your top tip to avoiding jet lag? I try really hard to exercise when I'm in the field. If I can't go jogging, I carry around with me an ab roller. Wow. It goes everywhere with me. And surprisingly, it gives me like a nice little workout. 
I need to kind of like burn some calories in order for me to get regulated. What's the episode you're most excited for in season nine of This Is Life? That's a a tough question because I love every episode for a different reason. And like all previous seasons of This Is Life, but I have been wanting to do something about the severe mental health crisis in America. And finally, we were given the green light to do it. And we centered it here in my hometown of Los Angeles, which is dealing with an epidemic right now. And so my hope is when people watch this episode about people living with severe mental illness who have become homeless, of which there are many, many these days, they will think differently when they see people who are aimlessly wandering the streets and talking to themselves. Like the next time you see this scene unfolding in your own hometown, after you've watched our episode, I hope you will think differently about these people. And the fact that no matter how severe their mental illness is, they can recover and lead a life of normalcy. What's one thing you do before you take on a new challenge? I talk to as many people in my own world, in my close circle about it. And I think really long and hard about it, but I become very decisive after I do that. What's the interview you want to do that you haven't gotten to do yet? Ooh, that is a really tough question. I've always been fascinated by people who have become really megalomaniacal. And so I would have to say that I would like to sit down with the likes of Vladimir Putin or Kim Jong-un and really understand what set them on the course that they are on now. That would be fascinating. I would watch a whole season of that. I hope you get to do those interviews. Yeah, me too. Okay, let's get into it. You got your start in journalism much earlier than most people do. You were a teenager on a news show for teens. How does that happen? Like, how did you even get that? Well, I auditioned for my first TV job when I was 16 called Scratch. And that was a show that was seen. It was a like a teen magazine show. And then when I turned 18... I auditioned for another show, which was a news show seen in middle schools and high schools called Channel One News. So two different shows that I started when I was a teenager. And because Channel One was seen only in schools by young people, they wanted to bring on young looking correspondents to deliver the news and cover news in the world for its young audience. And so they hired me and Anderson Cooper before he turned gray (laughs) and um, a bunch of young looking correspondents who were either in college or had recently graduated from college. And that's how we started working as journalists. It was our our first entree into, into reporting. And that show sent me all over the world to cover stories, including throughout parts of South America to cover the drug wars there. I was sent to Iran and China and Kazakhstan to cover uh, democracy movements in in those countries. So fascinating experience that I was able to uh, sort of achieve when I was quite young. It's pretty crazy to think about like what you were exposed to at at, like a, a field reporter's dream at such a young age. I mean, I'm trying to like even imagine, you know, where you were like headspace wise, because it's one thing to get, you know, exposure and given the opportunity, but it's another thing to be like, is anybody showing you the ropes? Is anybody showing you how to do this? 
like just kind of put us in the Lisa headspace when you were off camera or not reporting, when you went back to your room, what were you feeling? What was going through your head? You know, I've always been a, a, a pretty insatiably curious person. And even at a very, very young age, like I always love kind of being out of my comfort zone because it's when my senses were just so heightened. I think also because I struggled with ADD, I wasn't diagnosed until I was in my thirties, but I, I knew that I had focus issues in the classroom. But when I was able to travel and, and be in the world and be in environments that were so different and foreign and sometimes even uncomfortable for me, I felt like I could really hyper-focus and I was so acutely aware of my surroundings. And I really think that I thrived and I continue to thrive in those kinds of environments. And you don't have to travel to places like Afghanistan or, or Ghana to feel those things. You know, if you leave your comfort zone and you go into a community outside of your own, your senses will be heightened. And so as a young person, I mean, I had this incredible mentor and we were kind of like this two man band out in the world. He shot and produced and directed. And I held the microphone that was attached to the camera and we were tethered together and we were just out in the world reporting. And again, because it was seen by young kids in school, the fact that I wasn't polished and I was really just delivering what I was seeing and communicating the things that I was experiencing. I think that that really resonated with a younger audience. It wasn't this polished news reports where people were talking in sound bites. It was just conversations. When I think about the types of interviews that you've done and, and the types of programs that you've hosted, everything from like Nat Geo, Oprah Winfrey Network, CNN, The View, like you don't come up with a better list than that. One of the things we're focusing on in this season of 9 to 5-ish is overcoming challenges. When you look back at all of your experiences, what is the single hardest thing you've ever done in your career? The single hardest thing I've ever done in my career. Um, look, I've been in this business now over 30 some years and I still doubt myself. I think that as a woman, as a, as an ethnic woman who was never taught or never had real confidence modeled to me coming from a culture that encourages young people to do well in school, but to also not employ your voice, not to speak out in some ways, like to not be that nail that sticks out. Otherwise you'll get hammered down. For me, it has been a constant challenge to find my voice and to, to stand up for myself. I mean, I've gotten pretty decent at telling other people's stories but when it comes to advocating for myself, for negotiating for myself, for standing up for myself, it's really still challenging. And as I embark on my 50th year of life, it's something that I still deal with. And so I would say that on a personal level, that has been and continues to be my biggest challenge is really advocating for myself. I mean, I can sell shows really well and I, and I can sell ideas, but when it comes to advocating for myself, I shortchange myself too often. That's why people like me rely on agents. <laughs> and I have two male agents who have told me and I adore them and they've been incredible, but they've even told me, let us do your negotiating because we know that you love what you do so much that you, you do it for free. 
which is true. (laughs) (laughs) Don't say that. (laughs) They're right. I am so passionate about what I do. Lisa, don't say it. Don't say it. I know. I know. It's right. But it's so true. When I think about that, there's there's a few things there. The first is some people would think about that and say, yeah, you're right. Like, do what you're really great at. And if you can outsource the rest to people that you trust, like these agents, go for it. Being at this state in your career, do you feel like you now are at the point where you want to start extending your voice to these parts of your life? Or for you, has it been kind of essential that you find people who fill in those those blanks for you? It's such a great question. And, you know, in my industry, we we sort of we need agents because they can be the bad guy. They can be the intermediary. And it is hard for me to to do that because I'll be honest with you. I really just do want to do the work. I, I want to do the creative But having said that, I do think it's essential for women. And the advice that I would give to women is find that voice, know your worth, stand up for yourself. Because if I had learned to do that, I wouldn't just say, well, get what you can. (laughs) I would say, I deserve this and I deserve this and I demand this because I've worked so long and so hard and I deserve this. So my industry is very specific, but I do think that it's essential and I want my own kids to to learn how to advocate for themselves. And if they pursue this industry, I want them to be able to just be much more assertive when it comes to what they believe they are worth. At this point, you've gone to places on the ground in war-torn areas that most people would say are deemed scary. And yet you've said here that like your agents are like, no, we'll, we'll negotiate for you. Yeah. What stresses you out more going to like Afghanistan or North Korea or like having to negotiate your compensation? Oh man, Carly, that's a good one. Definitely the latter. I, I will go into a conflict zone, certainly with heightened awareness for sure. But I, I am so, again, just like, I am such a curious person. I have always wanted to be sort of on the front lines and, and bearing witness to anything and everything that is, is happening around me. But when it comes to advocating for myself, it fills me with anxiety and fear that is different from the kind of like heightened sense of awareness that I experience when I'm going into a conflict zone or an unpredictable environment. It's crazy to think about. <laughs> You know, it is crazy to think about. And, you know, in prepping for for this um, podcast, we were doing research and reading kind of old articles. And you have talked before about having to learn to assert yourself more at work because you're an Asian woman. I'm curious, one, when you realized that you had to work harder to have your voice heard, but also how you recommend managers, maybe managers that are listening how they should make sure all voices are heard in a way that feels genuine and that somebody maybe doesn't have to work as hard to get their voice heard. Well, I think two things have to happen. One, I think that Asian American women in particular, we need to figure out ways to be able to model this for the next generation. I mean, look, companies throughout this country and the world are probably filled with Asian women in their ranks, but Asian women statistically are the least likely to ascend to 
positions of authority and and climb that executive ladder. They're the least likely demographic of all demographics, despite how educated they often are and what, what they may have been able to achieve. And I think that one of the reasons is that Asian women historically have not advocated for themselves as well as other demographics. And we as a community have suffered from being overlooked. And I know that that's been the case for myself. People might look at my career from the outside looking in and go, wow, she's been on TV for over 30 some years. And she's even had multiple shows with her name attached to the show. This is Life with Lisa Ling, Our America with Lisa Ling. But can you think of any other Asian women who've had their names attached to a show in the, in the past 20 years? I mean, increasingly there are more and more. Now there's, you know, Padma Lakshmi has a show. Alex Wagner is, is anchoring a show on MSNBC. But prior to the last few years, I've been the exception. And the great actor Riz Ahmed recently said that that really resonated with me. It's not enough to be the exception. If you're the exception, it, it means you're complicit with the status quo. And so it's important for me and it's vital for me to try and raise awareness about this. And one, try to encourage my fellow Asian American women to advocate for themselves and advocate for each other, but other women as well. I was recently talking about this. Women in general often just shortchange themselves. We wait for positions to be offered to us rather than going out and seeking them out. A number of months ago, I met a woman who manages a multi-billion dollar pension fund in the state of Oregon. She's a black woman. And she said she recently got the job. And I said, I just have to, I'm just curious, did you seek this job out or did someone come to you and tell you to apply for it or someone like you know headhunted you and she said someone found me and i said would you have applied for this job without someone coming to you and she said probably not why not well i just i, I didn't think i i would qualify for it i mean i've had this conversation with numerous women not too long ago at, at you know a, a senior vice president at a network i said you should have the top job and she said oh no 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 i don't want it But if it were offered to her, I know she would take it. I know it. But she didn't feel like she could go out for it because she didn't think that she was qualified enough. And so I would say on the one hand, you know, from a corporate perspective, I think we need to be sensitive to these cultural issues that some of our employees might have. But I also think that women, particularly women of color, need to figure out better ways to advocate for each other and advocate for ourselves. From what you've said, I would infer that you take a a lot of ownership and kind of being the model for others that you haven't seen yourself. What does that weight feel like? So I, I think that the only weight that I feel is when people come to me and say, like, I want a job like yours. (laughs) How can I get a job like yours? Because the truth of the matter is my path to where I am now was a very circuitous one. And it's not an easy path. It's not something that I can say, well, you should go to this local market and spend a couple of years here and then try to start working and get hired in a bigger market and so on. It wasn't that kind of traditional path. What I do try to tell aspiring journalists or women who are about to kind of enter the workforce is figure out your own path, even if it's not a traditional one. Trust your instincts and really kind of listen to that inner voice 
that is telling you what you should be doing, what you are most comfortable doing, what you're most passionate about doing. While I, you know, talk to my closest circle, I am the one who makes the the ultimate decision. Trust your own instinct and trust your own kind of intuition. Because when you do that, I do think that it will lead you onto the right path. I want to talk about, switch gears a little bit and talk about your sister. You and your sister, Laura, had the opportunity to visit North Korea. She didn't visit it. (laughs) I was going to say, I was going to say, actually, it was a little bit different. So your sister was detained by the police in in North Korea. Um, Obviously, the situation with your sister was a little different because it was a family member. But do you have fear? And if so, did that situation change the boundaries that you had in going to some of the places you report from? Oh, yeah, of course I have fear. But it also, that fear sort of drives me at the same time. I mean, what I always think about, and look, now that I have two young kids, I think even longer and harder about the assignments that I take on and the places I go. Because look, my life is not my own anymore. And I have a responsibility to do everything that I can to ensure that I am available and that I'm there for my kids and they need me and I need them. And so that has changed. But having said that, what I always think about and what I always thought about when I would go to places that might be considered contentious is, you know, I'm going to these places for maybe a week or two weeks max. And the people who have to live under these conditions have to do so every day of their lives. So if I can go and communicate some sense of what their lives are like to a bigger audience. Like that, that is my objective. And we do weigh the risks um, whenever we head out into a part of the world that might be considered dangerous or contentious. And frankly, my sister never intended to go into North Korea. She was working on a story on the border of China and North Korea about women who had fled from North Korea and sought refuge in, in China. And she was led across the border by a fixer that they trusted who had worked both sides of the border and worked with other media before. And there's reason to believe that that fixer was getting paid by the North Korean government when they found out that my sister was working for Al Gore's company. And so they did cross that border as they were following their guide. But once they started to hear the footsteps of the North Korean soldiers, they ran across back into China were firmly ensconced and on Chinese soil when they were violently dragged back over the border into North Korea. So those soldiers actually violated China's sovereignty by doing so. But because they held the cards in this situation, we couldn't make that assertion. And so that wasn't her intention. Like she wasn't heading out into this unpredictable environment. Now, I did a couple of years prior because I went undercover into North Korea before I had kids And I worked under the auspices of being part of this medical delegation. And that certainly was, you know, I knew what I was getting into, although I really honestly thought that if I got stopped or detained, I would be just ejected out of the country. That was pretty naive of me. You know, there are risks that journalists take when they go to places that are considered to be unpredictable. And we just have to do whatever we can to consider all those risks and make the best decisions that we can. But for me, would I do it again? Maybe not with kids now. And if I did, I would have to have some assurances that I'd be able to leave the country after I finished my work. 
like my heart races when I hear the story, which we followed so closely at the time, but just hearing what you and your sister obviously went through, it's astounding, like what journalists, you know, in the field, what you, what you do and what you risk. So I appreciate you, you touching on that. I was just going to say before we go to the listener question, one thing, you know, obviously your situation, given that the journalist part was very different than this, but going through that experience with a loved one, anything you would say about what Brittany Griner's family is going through? My heart goes out to Brittany Griner and her family. I am aghast and horrified by how Brittany Griner is being, I think, used as this political pawn. And I, I just find it completely reprehensible that 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 she is still imprisoned for such a minor offense. And so all I, I can say to Brittany Griner's family is just have faith and have hope in in humanity. And I mean I hope that her her jailers, her imprisoners can exercise some sympathy about the fact that 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 this sentence has been completely unjust. We're gonna move to a listener question from Molly. Molly wants to know, Lisa, how has your time in the field and as an interviewer impacted how you communicate at work and your leadership style? It's a good question. The one thing that I think transcends work and home life or personal life is I, I try really hard to be a good listener. It's increasingly harder and harder to do that these days because I think most of us are on our devices all the time and you know, we're on social media and we follow the people who espouse the same things that we believe. And, and we're all kind of existing in these bubbles that, that are filled with people who support the things that we think and believe. And our feeds are becoming increasingly more personalized. We've alienated ourselves in some ways from hearing other perspectives and really knowing why people believe what they believe or why people think the way they think. And I find that is becoming really dangerous. And so I try hard and and look, I'm as, as vulnerable to algorithms as anyone else, personalized algorithms. And so I tr- have to try really hard to be proactive about engaging people human to human, person to person outside of devices. As a human race, that's something that I would like to see all of us get better at because in some ways, the future of our humanity depends on it. I couldn't agree more. I was like, I would like that if that was on Instagram, but I think that defeats the purpose of what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so who else should we have on this show? I would love to hear from more women in, in STEM and in tech. Well, we have our marching orders. Yes. I'm being assertive about that. <laughs> yes. Good. Thank you so much for, for sharing your story with us today um, and some very good advice. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carly and Danielle. Thanks for listening to this episode of 9 to 5-ish with The Skim. A new episode will be in your feed again next Wednesday. In the meantime, check out our news podcast, Skim This. Every Thursday, we cover what you need to know each week in 30 minutes or less. And if you want to keep up with us in between episodes, follow us on Instagram at Carly and Danielle. It's a really good account, I promise.